0: This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VUE Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clotin. and here's what's coming up.
1: The gain that had been done to stop the two-thirds majority has been reversed. But we know that Parliament is no longer relevant in deciding the future of Zimbabwe. It is heavily compromised. It is now a toothless bulldog. That was legislator
0: Daniel Molokele with Zimbabwe's main opposition party, the Citizens Coalition for Change, on the by-election victory by the ruling ZANU-PF that gives it a two-thirds majority. Also, protests for a second day in Dakar after President Makisal announced elections will be postponed and Namibian President Hagi Gangop died while being treated for cancer. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. In Senegal, authorities have limited access to the mobile internet today as members of parliament prepare to debate a bill that would delay elections for six months. There have been protests for a second day in Dakar today after President Sall announced on Saturday the elections, which had been set for February 25th, will be postponed. Sol cited a dispute over the candidate list and alleged corruption in the constitutional body that organized it. Several opposition candidates have been barred from running. Saul has said he is not running for a third term. Mimi Ture, a lawyer, former prime minister, and disqualified presidential hopeful, is urging Saul to hold elections before his second term expires on April 2nd. Ture told me a short time ago that opposition, civil society, and pro democracy groups will keep insisting on holding the election on time so the country's democracy is not undermined. Her remarks come after she was released for. Following a brief arrest last night in the Senegalese capital, Dakar.
2: Well, what I'm going to say is, we're going to keep fighting for Senegalese democracy. Presidential elections have never been postponed in this country since 1960, which is the beginning of the existence of Senegal as an independent state. So that's the first time ever uh, that one presidential election is postponed. Makisal uh, is supposed to go. Uh, comes 2nd of April um, and he's trying to overtake, which is unacceptable. So uh, yesterday was uh, a, a day of mobilization of Democrats and I was there. Unfortunately, all of this is putting uh, our country uh, you know, in instability because people would not accept democracy going backward the way it, uh, it is. McFarland um, should organize election as Um, Decided by the Constitution on 25th of February. Um, And that's all that we
0: are asking for. In postponing the election, he expressed concern about allegations of corruption with the Constitutional Council. That led to the disqualification of some prominent candidates, including you and Mr. Ward, from competing in the election. But don't you think these concerns have to be addressed? Yes, but... We don't want to be an excuse for Marquisele to overstay.
2: We want to postpone for one year, two years, or five years. Um, So now, uh, despite the fact that myself, I have been uh, removed from the process illegally, I'm the one saying, let's press on, because the decision of the Constitutional Court are not supposed to be definitive. So when you start uh, playing with the Constitution, And then uh, you open up for any kind of adventure. That's not what we want. Um, Because now we're going to find ourselves in a state of no law. President Macky Sall's firm ends 2nd of April. If we don't go to election, so what would happen? That's not what we want. No matter what the imperfections of the
0: the Constitution is, let's press on. So why wouldn't opposition groups, civil society groups, and other stakeholders engage the president in a dialogue to address some of these concerns that some Senegalese are expressing in order to chart the way forward? Why don't we start by organizing the
2: election as uh, the constitution say? And we will have time to dialogue. So that's not how constitution goes. You start by respecting the laws. You start by respecting the constitution. And then you open up dialogue. Dialogue is always good. Uh, But dialogue cannot be beyond um, uh, the the, the constitution provision, because that's what he did. Um, That would be the the second or the third dialogue he's calling for. Um, So now that he must go, because that's the bottom line, President Macky Sall must go come 2nd of April. And he has no choice. So let's carry on. And then... With a new regime, the new president, with we'll open up a dialogue to see how to reform our constitution, how to improve the electoral process. But he has no longer the legitimacy to deal with that. That's the question of legitimacy. Uh, in second of April, he no longer will be the president of Senegal. So now, the only task at hand for him is to organize the election, fair, transparent, and inclusive election on the 25th of February. I think it's quite clear for Senegalese, and that's the only thing we're expecting
0: from him. That was Senegal's former Prime Minister, Mimi Toure, speaking to me from Dhaka. For updates on development in Senegal, please check out VOAafrica.com. Zimbabwe's ruling party has bolstered its control of parliament to a two-thirds majority, according to by-election results released by the country's Elections Commission over the weekend. That paves the way for the ZANU-PF party to amend the constitution as it wishes, including removal of the two-terms limit for the presidency. Colombo's Mavunga reports from a Harare where ZANU-PF is celebrating its victory, and opposition parties are dreading the future.
3: ZANU-PF now holds... 190 out of 280 seats in the National Assembly after winning six seats in by-elections held over the weekend, according to the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission figures. Farai Muroiwa Marapira, the ZANU-PF spokesperson, attributed this party's victory to policies of President Emerson Mnangagwa since he took power in 2017 from the late Robert Mugabe. So with this two-thirds majority, we will look to ensuring that we process our legislation faster for the betterment of our country. ZANU-PF is the only party that has, from its inception, been focused only on ensuring that the people of Zimbabwe are served and to the best of their requirements and ability. So we'd like to thank the people of Zimbabwe and we'd like to assure them that they are safe in their trust of ZANU-PF and they will not regret this decision of interesting in the policies of President Mdangagwa. Wange central legislator Daniel Molokelo is with the country's main opposition party, the Citizens' Coalition for Change, or CCC.
1: It is indeed a very dark day in the history of Zimbabwe. The gain that had been done to stop the two-thirds majority has been reversed. But we know that parliament is no longer relevant in deciding the future of Zimbabwe. It is heavily compromised. It is now a toothless bulldog.
3: The same sentiment comes from Linda Masarira, leader of the Labour, Economists and African Democrats, or LEAD party.
0: ZANU-PF attaining two-thirds majority just means that every decision that is going to be made will be made on ZANU-PF's perspective without looking at what the other component of the population that does not believe in ZANU-PF also want. So for me I think it is a travesty of multi-party democracy which is actually enshrined in the constitution of Zimbabwe and I don't think we are going anywhere very fast if we are going to be having one party making the decisions all the decisions for all Zimbabweans.
3: Gibson a RRA based political analyst says the election victories should keep ZANU PF in the driver's seat of Zimbabwe politics for years to
0: come. It will be easy for ZANU PF to discuss proposed legislative agendas. It becomes easy and also at a broader national scale, it means that uh, ZANU-PF will remain a dominant party which will be able to conquer the political domains nationally because the opposition, as it is proven at the moment in the by-elections, it lacks the capability to ideologically organize and mobilize its people or its structures.
3: Zimbabwe's next general election is slated for 2028. That's when President Emerson Mnangagwa's second and final term will end unless PF changes the constitution. News,
0: mm-hmm. Namibian President Hagi Gangob died yesterday while receiving medical treatment for cancer. The 82-year-old had a colonoscopy and a gastroscopy on January 8, followed by a biopsy his office said last month. Dr. Panduleni Itula, president of the Independent Patriots for Change, or IPC, Namibia's leading opposition party, has called for calm and urged all party members to stop campaign activities until the deceased president is buried. Speaking to viewers Paul Indiho, Itula said Gangob was an exceptional revolutionary, international civil servant and patriotic statesman who believed in building his country.
1: It's an incredible, incredible, devastating strategy that the Namibian people have found them in this morning when the presidency of our republic of the Republic of Namibia announced the passing of our beloved president, His Excellency Dr. Hake Gottfried Kinkob, who was in his second term uh, as president of the Independent Patriots for Change and as someone who stood and contested for the presidency in twenty nineteen. It's particularly devastating because it's someone that I have actually dealt with, and someone who, after the elections, we maintained a cordial, mature political relationship in which I was also at times invited to State House during State House events at the honor of His Excellency as he entertains international guests and international dignitaries and presidents as well. So it's going to be a very devastating uh, blow to the Namibian president. Is the presidency. It's the first time that the Republic of Namibia encountered such a period where a sitting president passes on uh, almost in the final stages of his presidency. A lot of uh, people
0: have said he was an incredibly, incredibly talented uh, uh, person, Uh, Even during his presidency, uh, he went about it uh, very uh, professionally. A lot of politicians uh, tend to uh, do other things uh, to their opponents. uh, But uh, from your testimony, you just said that uh, he reached out, he extended an olive branch. How would you uh, describe uh, his legacy? I
1: can relate to the relationship that has evolved following our contestation of the presidency of the Republic of Namibia in 2019 where His Excellency scored uh, 464,000 votes, and I was a close second of 249,000 votes, the first ever such uh, situation emerging in Namibia. Nonetheless, I remember being invited to State House and foreign uh, dignitary uh, an ambassador asked me, Dr. Itula, what are you doing at State House? In our country, if you contested with the president, then you will not be even seen closer to the state house in the streets, and you will be arrested. And I clearly stated what we maintained, as uh, uh, His Excellency the President then of Namibia and myself, is that that where contestation ends, decency and patriotism commences, and we work together as Namibian to build our nation. And he was passionate about building the Namibian house, inclusive Namibian house where no one should be left feeling left out. How would you want a people to remember him? Pronounced himself as a Democrat and believed in the succession of democratically elected presidents. And he is renowned for supporting democratical processes. And he stated not long ago, two, three months ago, that of course Namibians do things differently and that whoever is going to be selected and be given the mandate to govern the Republic of Namibia, that he will be supporting such a person. As a democrat, he truly believed in that. So he has tried as hard to put Namibia on the international map as a country that belonged uh, believed in uh, in democracy, and he has kept the ship floating on the democratic map indeed.
0: That was Panduleni Tula, president of Independent Patriots for Change, Namibia's leading opposition party. He spoke earlier to view his polling deal. Nangolo Mbumba was installed yesterday as the interim president, saying he does not plan to run for a full term in elections later this year. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his way to the Middle East for his first trip since Washington brokered an offer with Israeli input for the first extended ceasefire of the war. The offer was delivered to Hamas last week by Qatari and Egyptian mediators. It still awaits a reply from militants who say they want more guarantees that it will bring an end to the four-month-old war in the Gaza Strip. Reuters says the ceasefire proposal will see a truce for at least 40 days, while militants would free remaining hostages from among the 253 they captured in the deadly October 7 raid into Israel. It will also allow in aid to alleviate Gaza's humanitarian crisis and let Gaza's 2.3 million people return to homes abandoned during the war. The only previous truce so far, Lasted a week. The United States Ambassador to the United Nations' Linda Thomas-Greenfield says the warring generals in Sudan need to put down their guns and begin negotiations. V.O.S. Carol Van Damme has more.
4: The United Nations says at least 13,000 people have been killed and millions more displaced in the battle for control of Sudan between Army Commander Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the top U.S. diplomat at the U.N., recently told journalists an immediate ceasefire is needed and that the generals need to move towards civilian rule. It is incumbent that those who are assisting these two generals to Uh, fight this war against the people of Sudan, cease those efforts, and the generals go and negotiate a final uh, deal with civilians at the table with them. Last week, the International Organization for Migration said 10.7 million people have been uprooted from their homes in Sudan, the world's largest internal displacement. Letitia Bader is Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch
5: these are incredibly grim statistics, but behind those statistics, you obviously have immense stories of personal upheaval and devastating decisions. I mean, many people that we've spoken to have had to leave literally everything behind, their homes, but also their relatives, a lot of older people, people who also can't afford to flee. Fleeing costs a lot of money in a context of war. Bader
4: says aid is being prevented from entering the country by both sides. But the RSF in particular is looting much of the aid that makes it into their areas of control. She tells VOA that the international community is not doing enough to convince the two sides to stop fighting.
5: What we have seen in terms of the international response is we've seen messages of solidarity, but we haven't really seen that being mirrored by real efforts to push to be very clear that there are consequences for actions such as blocking aid, which is a violation of international humanitarian law when it's done on the scale and in the ways it's being done right now in Sudan.
4: Lenny Kinsley with the World Food Programme tells VOA that access to food aid is the first thing the people of Sudan who are bearing the brunt of the conflict need. Unfettered access, access across lines of conflict, and uh, without that, we are not able to have the freedom of movement to transport essential and vital life-saving assistance to people who are trapped in these conflict hotspots. Kensley says the WFP joins others in the call for both sides to stop blocking aid and to lay down their guns so the suffering can end. Carol Van Dam for VOA News, Washington.
0: You are listening to Africa News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see VOAafrica.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out VOAnews.com. At least one child is dying every two hours in Sudan's Zamzam camp, one of the largest and oldest camps for displaced people in the country. Reuters spoke with the head of the group's emergency response in Sudan, Claire Nicolet. She says before the start of the conflict last April, people in the camp relied on international support for food and health care, including clean water. But now, she says, they have been almost completely abandoned.
6: The rubble from some 170,000 buildings damaged in the war in Gaza is more than just a humanitarian concern. It's also an environmental one. Lindsay Cottrell is an environmental policy officer with the Conflict and Environment Observatory.
5: What the likelihood that there may be con- um, storage of chemicals, fuel tanks or um, other, other materials that may then cause contamination. The environmental um, quality of um, of existing groundwater supplies were already poor and that's been exacerbated by the the current conflict.
6: Scientists are trying to assess the environmental impacts of the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East. Studies include war-related forest fires and pollution from weapons. Significant threats to humans, wildlife, and ecosystems in Ukraine, researchers warn. Nikolai Denisov is deputy director of the Geneva-based NGO ZOE Environment Network.
0: Any ordinance which is explosive, uh, when it explodes, it can sort off new fires
1: and can, uh, it definitely produces more chemicals which come out.
6: Separate researchers in Europe, the UK and the US are making pioneering efforts to measure war-related greenhouse gas emissions that contribute to climate change leonard De Klerk estimates greenhouse gas emissions from the ukraine-russia war greenhouse gas emissions you don't measure directly so you derive them from amount of fuel that has been used or um you know the amount of uh, fire so um, we have different kinds of, uh, of sources. One peer-reviewed study conducted inside Ukraine says the first 18 months of war produced more greenhouse gases than the annual emissions of Austria, Portugal or Hungary. But the lack of international guidelines to measure emissions from conflict, the limited opportunities for field research and the secrecy surrounding military operations – Mean that estimates are not always precise or conclusive. Nonetheless, those making them argue they are important to better understand and improve the global fight against climate change. Benjamin Nymark calculates greenhouse gas emissions from the Israel-Hamas conflict.
4: If we haven't learned anything over the past few years, um, you know, extreme weather events from floods to uh, extreme temperatures to um, you know, a whole host of, of salinity problems, You know, this is at our front door.
6: Holding climate polluters accountable remains a challenge. Under the current international reporting system, countries report the greenhouse gas emissions produced in their own territory. There are no formal guidelines to measure those emissions from a conflict or a legal framework to attribute responsibility. Rostislav Boone has also estimated war-related emissions generated inside Ukraine in 18 months of conflict.
2: International efforts will be needed from scientists, policymakers to develop some new guidelines.
6: The U.S. military backs the wars in Ukraine and Gaza, but the Pentagon says it takes the threat from climate change seriously. Press Secretary Major General Pat Ryder told VOA.
1: When it comes to climate change and the effect of climate change, the department has been very clear to include referencing it in our national defense strategy that we as a, as a U.S. military need to adapt and be ready to address the kinds of challenges that climate change presents.
6: Researchers underlined that while mitigating environmental and climate change impacts must remain a top concern, Addressing the humanitarian crisis and civilian suffering in war zones must also take precedence. Veronica Valeras Iglesias, VOA News, Washington.
0: At least 35 women are missing after kidnappers seized guests returning from a wedding in northwestern Nigeria. The French news agency AFP says... The mass kidnapping, in Katina State, is the largest in a series of recent abductions across Africa's most populous country. Police spokesman Abubakar Aliyu said suspected bandits ambushed and kidnapped the women who were coming back from the wedding in the Sabuwa area on Thursday night. Police have urged residents to avoid traveling at night and say security personnel were trying to find and rescue the captives. Kidnapping for ransom is a major problem in Nigeria, with criminal gangs targeting highways, apartments, and even pupils from schools. Nigerian risk consultancy SBM Intelligence said it had recorded 3,964 abductions since President Bola Tinubu took office in May. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at viewafrica.com On behalf of our producer, David and engineer the great Rob McLean, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.